I hope that you're all calling in to listen to Amanda Baylog talk talk to us about genetics today. We're pretty excited to have her on and uh, just explore some of those questions that we have and just have her explain everything from a genetic counselor point of view. So uh, if that's what you've called in for, you are in the correct location. We will give everyone a few minutes to call in and uh, get settled. So I will be muting the call to preserve our call quality and uh, hopefully open up the lines at the end of the call so that uh, a few questions could be asked if Amanda has time for that. So um, be prepared for that. But in the meanwhile or while questions are going on, you know, please feel free to mute yourself using star six, and that way, you know, if your doorbell rings or the dogs are going crazy, uh, other people can still ask their questions or, you know, our call quality will be preserved because we do record today's call. Um, just so you know, we do have slides to go along with this presentation, and they can be found either just by going to our website, mitoaction.org, and scrolling down to today's presentation and clicking on it. Um, or you can go directly to that presentation by going to www.mitoaction.org slash blog slash GeneDX, G-E-N-E-D-X. And there's a little box to the right of the screen, and it says View the Slides, and we can all follow along the slides in that way. If you have any trouble getting to those slides, you can email me at mito411 at mitoaction.org. That all may sound confusing, but... Really, just go to our website, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see under events that today's GeneDX presentation is uh, is available. Well, we have a few minutes before we get going. Is there anyone? Oh, I should introduce myself. My name is Mary Beth Hollinger. I am the Director of Education, Support, and Advocacy here at MitoAction, and uh, I help to gather speakers and put on these presentations along with the rest of our crew, so I am just happy to be able to give you guys experts so that we can all learn, increase our knowledge base, share with our physicians and our PTs and our OTs and everyone involved in us so that we just raise awareness, education, and you know help our MITO community along as best as we can. Um, would anyone else like to say a, a hello, a quick hello, while we're waiting for everyone to join our call? Hi, I'm Lori Hi, Lori. Hi. Welcome. And where are you from, Lori? Buffalo, New York. Oh, Buffalo. I'm from uh, the Albany area, so not too far away. No, not at all. No, not. Yep, it's relatively close. On the road. To some others. <laughs> That's right. And I heard someone else say hello to me, but I didn't quite catch it. It's me, Joy. Hi, Joy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. See, Joy's on the other coast. She's not close to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> good. I'm and glad. The weather is terrible. It's actually raining and not so nice here either, so. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else want to say a quick hello before we get started? Hello. Hi. Who are you? Hi. Good. How are you doing? I am I am great. Uh, what? Where are you calling from? What is your name? Uh, my name is Jennifer, and I'm calling from Annapolis, Maryland. Great. Well, welcome, Jennifer. Welcome. It would be a great topic, even for those on a diagnostic path to get a mitochondrial disease diagnosis, or even those who have had the testing but have some lingering questions with, well, now I have these 
either unknown variants or maybe some known mutations. But what does this all mean? It wasn't really the answer I thought it would be, or you know, it hasn't impacted, or it has greatly impacted my treatment. So I am so thrilled that Amanda is joining us. So let me review one more time how to get to those slides so that you can follow along. Again, the call will be recorded, and it will be available for us to listen to later on or share with our community as we see fit. Um, so those slides are on our website, www.mitoaction.org. If you scroll down, you will see the new events coming up. Click on the Gene Diagnostic Presentation, Gene DX Presentation, and you'll go right to that page. If you want to go directly to the page, www.mitoaction.org slash blog slash GeneDX, um, and you'll be right there. There's a little green box to the right of the page that says View the Slides. Click there to just get a view of those slides, and you can follow along with the slides on your own, advancing the slides at uh, your pace with Amanda's uh, help and direction. Uh, let's see. Again, when I open up the lines at the end, please mute your line to preserve our call quality. The background noise seems to be amplified <laughs> when we open those lines and we hear all sorts of stuff that we don't need to hear, so that would be awesome. My name again, Mary Beth Hollinger. I'm the Director of Education Support and Advocacy here at MitoAction. I have um, generations of ties to mitochondrial and neuromuscular disorders, so uh, I am quite interested to hear what Amanda has to say, even the impact of family history on these results. Uh, Amanda, our, well, let me, let me go ahead and mute the line so that uh, we will, last time I did that a little late, so, um, all right, I am going to mute the line and put it in presentation mode, so give me one second here. conference is now in silent mode. Great, I think we are set to go. Um, Amanda, are you on the call? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. We can hear you. I can hear you fine. Great. Dandy sounds very clear. And um, I just would like to welcome you and thank you again for joining us today. We are thrilled to have you with us. Um, it's just such an honor when we can get these experts in the field to come and share their expertise in their either big area of mitochondrial disease or small area of mitochondrial disease. So let me just take a moment to introduce you. Uh, so this is Amanda Baylog. She is a senior genetic counselor um, at GeneDX for mitochondrial and metabolic genetics, which is, I'm sure, a very large <laughs> portion of genetic testing, especially with all the newborn um, screening that is now done. Um, Amanda is board-certified genetic counselor, and I just think genetic counselors are such an invaluable part to, of the field of genetics because, again, you take that little bit of information, here's a specific mutation, and you bring it to life, you give it a, you know, significance and how do you live with it and all those questions that, you know, the patients go home with. So thank you for doing what you do. I know that you're the lead genetic counselor for that mitochondrial and metabolic testing program at GeneDX, and I'm sure that's a quite challenging and powerful role you have there. Um, and you're, you have good previous experience in both clinical and research as a genetic counselor 
with immune and liposomal storage disorder. So you really, uh, I'm sure you really know yourself, Amanda, and we are so thrilled to have you. Um, I will let you take over, Amanda, and if it's okay by you, we will save some questions for the end. Um, and we will have both a few live questions and some emailed-in questions. So if anyone would like to email me with a question or if you're having trouble finding those slides, uh, the best way to reach me is mito411 at mitoaction.org, and I will um, be willing to answer those questions and keep a list for the end if you would like me to voice your question for you. Does that all sound good with you, Amanda? That sounds great. Okay, so uh, again, the the callers will follow along the slides on their own, and if you want to orient them every now and then, oh, I'm on slide four, or you know, here's a picture of a cow or whatever, then we can all uh, you know be together. I know your first picture, I love it. You know, this is not just your mom's genome. I'm like, oh, I love that with the zebra. So, um, all right, well, I will give you over the mic, Amanda, and. Uh, you know, just let us know what's up in the mitochondrial genetic world. Sure. Thank you, Mary Beth, and thanks to MitoAction for letting me speak to you all today about mitochondrial genome and genetics and genetic testing for mitochondrial disorders. It's a very confusing and complicated and fast-moving part of uh, genetics, and so um, I'm happy to provide a little background information and um, answer some questions from you guys. So the title of this presentation is Not Just Your Mother's Genome, um, because when we talk about mitochondrial disorders, we talk a lot about the mitochondrial genome, but we want to take a step back and look at all aspects of mitochondrial genetics and have a kind of broader overview for this talk. Um, and so like Mary Beth said, if you're following along with the slides, um, I will try to give you the number of the slide that we are looking at um, every once in a while. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that I have to disclose that I am an employee of GeneDx. We are a diagnostic genetic testing laboratory that is a subsidiary of OPCO and that we do mitochondrial genome testing and mitochondrial genetic testing here. Um, and I also want to let you know that the information that I'm presenting today is our experience at GeneDx, and um, the testing experience can vary from lab to lab. So I know a lot of this information um, will be very familiar to you all, but I want to make sure that everyone has a good background. So let's start with the basics on what are mitochondria. <laughs> so mitochondria are subcompartments that are in almost every part uh, or every cell within your body. And the mitochondria is what turns the food you eat into the energy that your cells need. So it turns that food into chemical energy that your cells can use to do all of their work, from keeping your heart pumping, to your brain cells firing, to your muscles working, and your body growing and developing. Mitochondria really are the source of energy for those parts of your body. So now that we kind of know what mitochondria are, what can happen when you have concerns with your mitochondria? Individuals with mitochondrial disorders can have symptoms in almost every part of their body. Um, but the um, symptoms that they have 
particularly occur in organs or tissues that need the most energy, since mitochondria are responsible for providing that energy. So things like your muscle, your heart, your liver, your brain, those are where we see the symptoms. So they can have cardiomyopathy or muscle weakness or um, vision concerns. And individuals who have a mitochondrial disorder may have symptoms in just their heart or just their muscle, or they can have symptoms in all of these organ systems. So they can have problems with seizures and digestive issues and having anemia. And it's also important to note that these symptoms can change over time. So some individuals may just start out with muscle weakness and then later develop seizures or heart problems. So it's not just a snapshot at one point in time. It's looking at a patient's symptoms over time when we're suspecting a mitochondrial disorder. Um, so for a look at slide five, you will see a picture of human chromosomes. And so when we talk about genetics, most of the time we are talking about things called nuclear genes. So these are the genes um, that you inherit from both of your parents. You get one copy from mom, one copy from dad. And most of your genetic information is in your nuclear genome. So this is the information that makes you you. So your hair color, your eye color, how tall you are, to whether you have long fingers or short fingers, um, this is what makes you you. Um, and again, so there's 46 chromosomes and 23 pairs, and you inherit one copy from each parent. So if we look at the next slide, we'll see that the genetics of mitochondrial um, of the mitochondria are a little different. Um, mitochondria are unique because they have their own separate genome. Um, and unlike the nuclear genome, instead of being in a long string, mitochondrial genomes are in a circle. Um, another unique thing about mitochondrial DNA is that you don't inherit it from both mom and dad. It's only from mom. So if a mom has a, a mitochondrial genome mutation, all of her children could be at risk for inheriting that versus if dad ha is the one who has a mitochondrial genome mutation, none of his children are at risk for inheriting that. So there are some other particularly unique aspects of mitochondrial genome um, that make testing and evaluating for mitochondrial disorders a challenge sometimes, and we'll discuss those a little later in the presentation. So when we discuss mitochondrial disorders, how do we diagnose these? And in the genetics realm, mitochondrial disorders are particularly difficult to diagnose, and I'm sure a lot of you are very, very familiar with that fact. Um, this particular cartoon shows blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is by examining its different parts. So depending on the part that they're looking at, they're all coming up with different conclusions. So the fellow who is investigating his tusks think, oh, it's a spear. The man holding his ear thinks, oh, it's a fan. Um, so depending on how you're looking at it, you have a different perspective on what it is. And this is true for many individuals with mitochondrial disorders. Um, if they have heart concerns and they see a cardiologist, the cardiologist may just look at the heart symptoms that they're having. Um, 
if they see a neurologist, they may just think about the seizures a particular child is having. If they're seeing an ear, nose, and throat doctor, they may just look at the hearing loss. Um, but it's not until you take a step back, look at the entire medical history, and the whole picture of the patient, do you begin to suspect a mitochondrial disorder? And this is what um, genetics is particularly good at, is taking that step back and looking at the whole presentation of a patient um, to try to find a diagnosis. So if you look at the table on slide eight, you will see a very large table with a very large number of genes. And this is a table actually from 2012, and it showed the nuclear genes that we knew at the time caused a primary mitochondrial disorder. So this list is very large, and it's already outdated. Uh, currently, there's over 250 genes known to cause primary mitochondrial disorders and more are being discovered on a regular basis as we continue to do more genetic testing on more patients and have more sophisticated tools, um, both in data analysis and computers and with genetic testing itself um, to discover genes and to discover different variants. So, when you're, if you have a physician that thinks you have a primary mitochondrial disorder, they may order a mitochondrial disorder testing panel, which looks at these hundreds of genes to try and find a cause. Um, one of the big advantages of doing a panel test versus other types of tests, it makes sure that we look at those genes really closely, and it may include um, different types of analysis on testing those genes. If we look at the next slide, slide nine, your physician may also consider something called whole exome sequencing or WES. So instead of looking at a targeted set of 250 genes or 100 genes or 50 genes, whole exome sequencing sequences the coding part of about 20,000 genes, so almost all of your um, genome. So of of the genes in your genome. Not all of these genes are associated with a human disease. Only about a quarter of them are, if you look at that um, uh, pie wedge there. But most of the genetic changes that we look at with um, that cause a human disease are going to be in the exome. And so the exome is the coding part. It's the part of genes that get turned into protein, which that's not your whole genome. It's only about 2% of it. But like I said, when we're looking for things that cause human disease, most of those genetic variants are going to be within the exome. So whole exome sequencing is a more um, broad look at genetics. Um, and so because we're looking at so many more genes, you're not going to find all your variants in the report. We're just going to report things that look like they could be the cause of the symptoms that a particular patient is having. So regardless of the type of genetic testing an individual has, whether it's a panel test or whole exome sequencing, one of the most important steps in that testing is the analysis component. Whether you're sequencing one gene or 20 genes or 20,000 genes, you're going to find genetic variation. You're going to find variants that are different than the standard set. 
and most genetic variation is normal. If we go back, it's what makes you you. It makes your facial features, your eye colors. These minor differences are caused by normal genetic variation. So the analysis process is trying to determine if a variant that we find is part of that normal genetic variation or could it possibly cause the symptoms the patient is having. And so on slide 11, you'll see kind of the spectrum that we look at when we're doing, we're trying to decide if a variant could be causing a patient's symptoms. So uh, when we do whole exome sequencing or when we do um, panel testing, we look at those variants and try to put each of those variants on this spectrum. So is it pathogenic or disease-causing? Or is it benign, a normal part of variation? So we use lots of different types of evidence to see where a particular variant falls on this spectrum. Um, for nuclear genes, we follow a set of published guidelines that one of our co-founders, Sherry Bale, helped develop in 2015. So these guidelines are used by not just us at GeneDx, but many other laboratories. And the goal of having these guidelines is to have a set of um, rules and um, objective criteria that we can use to improve the quality of our variant interpretation and to increase the consistency from laboratory to laboratory. Um, our goal is to see if it's a pathogenic variant, see that most laboratories call it pathogenic, or if it's of uncertain significance that we have um, agreement between those different laboratories. So for mitochondrial genomes, uh, genome variants, um, the, the previously published set of guidelines don't apply to those variants. So, uh, but we look at much the same information that those guidelines put out. So we look at um, published genomes that ha are from healthy individuals. So we see, is this variant present in healthy individuals? We look at the type of genetic change. Is it one that um, chops the protein in half? Is it in part of a gene that's really, really important and we know can cause disease in that region? Um, we say, has this ever been published before? Has it ever been reported in somebody who has a mitochondrial disorder? Um, and I will say that one of the biggest pieces of inf information that we use, especially for mitodisorders, is detailed clinical information. So it helps us identify patterns. Do we see the same variant in multiple unrelated patients who look a lot alike clinically, who have the same set of seizure symptoms and uh, vision problems and heart problems? Um, and the other major criteria and evidence that we use for mitochondrial genome variants is parental testing. Um, when we have the parental information in our testing, we are much more likely to come to a diagnosis or to be able to interpret these variants accurately. So we look at, um, was this particular variant inherited from a parent who doesn't have any symptoms, then it's less like it's more likely to fall on the benign side than the pathogenic side versus a variant 
that is de novo or only in the child and wasn't inherited from either parent, that's more likely to find um, fall into the pathogenic end of the spectrum. Um, another thing that's important to note about variant interpretation is that it's not static. Um, every time we see a variant, uh, we gain additional information that can move this variant along the spectrum. Um, just because a variant was of uncertain significance in 2014 doesn't mean that it's still a variant of uncertain significance in 2017. Um, so at GeneDx, we think it's important for us to contribute to the genetics community, and we submit our variant classifications to a database called ClinVar, where we say, we found this variant, and this is how we classify it. And it says the date of the classification. And um, we're one of the top submitters for laboratories in that database. Um, so individuals who had testing at GeneDx or at other laboratories can look at ClinVar and see what the current classification is for that variant. But overall, um, it's important for patients who have had genetic testing in the past, especially if it didn't provide a clear diagnosis or there were some variants of uncertain significance found um, to follow up with their physicians to see if that variant of uncertain significance in 2014 is still a variant of uncertain significance in 2017. All right, uh, so we often get the question of which test is best for patients who are suspected to have a mitochondrial disorder. And unfortunately, the, the simple answer is there is no single test that is best for all patients. Um, what test is the most likely to ha uh, come to a diagnosis really does depend on the patient's specific symptoms and family history. And it should be a discussion between you and your doctor to see which, which test is best for you and which one is most likely to lead to a diagnosis. So we had talked about panel testing and whole exome sequencing. And so what happens when we compare those two? And if you look on slide 13, you'll see two different pie charts with the diagnosis rate of panel testing versus whole exome sequencing, which are the two most common types of genetic tests for mitochondrial disorders. So when we compare panel testing, for these patients who are suspected of having a mitochondrial disorder, we found that whole exome sequencing had a higher chance of finding a diagnosis. So whole exome sequencing identified a diagnosis in about 29% of our patients versus panel testing found a diagnosis in about 20%. Um, and both of these tests, um, we're talking the 29 and the 20% is just the nuclear diagnoses. When you um, add in the mitochondrial genome, it adds about 3% to that total diagnosis. Um, and so with this data, why wouldn't you always do whole exome sequencing? Um, and when we looked at our panel testing, we found that we, when we looked at the types of symptoms a patient was having, if the patient was having symptoms that were classic for a mitochondrial disorder, so things like Lee syndrome, where they have very specific um, findings on brain MRI, or if they had something called progressive external ophthalmoplegia, which is a very specific type of eye muscle weakness. So these are patients who not only look like they could have a mito disorder, 
it's really, 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 really strongly um, look like they have a mito disorder. And so those individuals had a diagnosis rate higher than 20%, whereas patients who had symptoms that were a little less specific, so things like isolated muscle weakness or isolated seizures, where it could be mito, but it also could be other types of genetic disorders, those patients had a much lower rate um, than 20% with panel testing. Um, and we'll dive more into the whole exome sequencing positive results on the next slide, but I just wanted to take this minute to also talk about negative results. So even with whole exome sequencing, we're looking at 20,000 genes, um, but a negative result doesn't mean that there's not a genetic cause for the symptoms that a patient was having. Um, there are multiple reasons why you could have a genetic disorder and have negative genetic um, tests results, and it could be because there is a type of variant that you have that um, wouldn't be detected by this test. So fragile X syndrome wouldn't be detected by whole exome sequencing, and that's one of the most common types of intellectual disability in boys. Or you could have um, a variant in a gene that we just don't know the function of yet. So if we remember back to the beginning, um, only about a quarter of the genes of the 20,000 genes in our exome are known to cause a, uh, any genetic disorder. So um, it just can be we just don't know what that gene does yet to um, accurately link that variant to a patient's symptoms. So if you look at slide 14, you'll see um, a little bit closer examination of the whole exome sequencing results for patients who were suspected of having a mitochondrial disorder. Um, so when we look at that 29% of whole exome patients, or 29% who had a positive result or a diagnostic result, when we break that down, we found that over half of the diagnoses we made using whole exome sequencing were not primary mitochondrial disorders. So when we talked about the elephant before, we said that mitochondrial disorders are particularly challenging to diagnose. And one of those reasons is that mito disorders look like a lot of other disorders, and a lot of other disorders look like they could be a mito disorders. So um, a child with seizures could have... Um, an epilepsy gene mutation, or they could have a primary mitochondrial disorder, or um, patients who have muscle weakness could have um, a muscular dystrophy, or they could have a mito disorder. So that makes it particularly difficult to figure out um, which test is best. Um, in addition, some of these conditions that were not primary mito disorders, so in the gray wedge, can indirectly cause mitochondrial disorders. So again, making them look even more like primary mito disorders. So this just reinforces that testing for mito disorders is difficult, and it's difficult to decide which test is best. But um, we have some data to say which ones, based off of um, our internal data, look like the most likely to yield a diagnosis. So if we move on to slide 15, um, if you remember from earlier, we had talked about having two copies of um, most nuclear genes, so one from mom and one from dad. So if we're looking at a particular specific variant, you generally can have zero copies, one copy, or two copies. 
Um, however, with mitochondrial genomes, each cell can have hundreds of mitochondria, and this can lead to something called heteroplasmy. So heteroplasmy is the percent of mitochondrial genomes that have a particular variant. And this number can be 0%, it can be 1%, and it can be anywhere in between 1% and 100%. Um, and with that, the another added level of difficulty with mitochondrial genome heteroplasmy is that this percentage that you see of a particular variant can vary from tissue to tissue. Um, one of the classic mitochondrial genome mutations is the A3243G mutation for MELOS syndrome. And MELO, that particular MELOS mutation is very, um, this happens quite often with that variant. So many patients with MELOS syndrome may have the pathogenic variant in blood, but it's at a low level, so maybe 3 or 4 or 6%. But when we look at an affected tissue or tissue where they're having symptoms like muscle, we'll find a significantly higher heteroplasmy level. So we'll see 50% or 60% in muscle. Um, another important aspect of heteroplasmy is this percentage can um, vary with age. If we go back to that common MELAS mutation, um, the level of heteroplasmy for affected individuals tends to go down in blood over time. So at age 12, they may have 40% heteroplasmy versus at age 40, they may only have 15% heteroplasmy. Um, even if the heteroplasmy in a muscle sample for that same patient remains at, say, 40% or remains high. Um, additionally, when we talk about mitochondrial genome variants and heteroplasmy, um, we see something called the threshold effect. So if an individual has 2% heteroplasmy for a slam dunk pathogenic variant that we know is pathogenic and no causes a you know, uh, classic mitochondrial disorder, 2% may not be enough to cause symptoms in that individual. Um, so you need a certain level of um, heteroplasmy in order to show symptoms. And um, this particular level of the threshold can vary from variant to variant. So there are two, um, so there's a classic mitochondrial pathogenic variant for um, antibiotic-induced hearing loss, and for Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy. For individuals who have pathogenic variants associated with those two conditions, generally if, um, we see symptoms when the individual has 100% of cells have the pathogenic variant or close to 100% of cells have that pathogenic variant. Whereas that common MELAS mutation, you can show symptoms at just 25% heteroplasmy. So it's important to look at not just the heteroplasmy level, but the particular variant that is identified in a patient. Since heteroplasmy um, can vary from tissue to tissue, we get a lot of questions about sample type and which sample type is best for mitochondrial genome testing. Um, and so in general, our philosophy is we want to look at the tissues where we're most likely to identify a variant if it's there. Um, so for individuals who have a mitochondrial genome uh, pathogenic variant, generally there's a higher percentage of that variant 
in places where they have symptoms. So if they have liver dysfunction, it's generally higher in liver. Or if they have muscle weakness, it's generally higher in muscle. So if you have those, if a patient has those particular symptoms, then a lot of times muscle may be best. Um, and sometimes it's not just which sample is best, which sample is critical to making a diagnosis. And there are some specific types of disorder where um, having a particular sample type is really, really important can, and can make or break a diagnosis. So if you look at slide 18, you'll see pictures from an individual has, who has something called chronic progressive external ophthalmoplegia, which is a mouthful. Um, and CPEO is a symptom that is highly specific for mitochondrial disorders. So it's a very specific type of muscle um, weakness of the eyes. And most of these patients have a primary mitochondrial disorder. Um, it's important to note that half of these patients have a large mitochondrial uh, genome deletion. So you'll see half or a quarter of the mitochondrial genome is just missing um, in those patients. But it's important to note that if you test the blood of these patients, you won't find that deletion. If it's, even if it's present at a high um, level in muscle, it's only detectable in muscle. So you can test blood. All you want, and for patients who have a deletion that causes PEO, um, you won't find it in the blood, only in the muscle sample. Um, if you look at page 19, you'll see um, a bone marrow uh, biopsy from a patient who has Pearson syndrome, which is an infantile onset cytoplastic anemia um, and pancreatic dysfunction condition. And so it's a very specific type of anemia and a very specific type of pancreatic disease that is um, really makes you think this individual has a mito disorder. And so with patients with Pearson syndrome, they also have these large mitochondrial genome deletions. But in this case, you don't want to send muscle because generally the deletions in these patients is confined to blood. So for these two particular um, conditions, sample type is extremely important and, like I said, can make or break the diagnosis of the patient. Um, we also get a lot of questions about other sample types for mitochondrial genome testing. Um, while muscle is a good uh, type of tissue to test for many patients, muscle biopsies are invasive. Um, and we would rather not biopsy a baby if, if we don't have to. And even blood draws can be hard to get for some patients. Um, so we have looked at other sample types that are um, that we get questions about. And, but the question of which sample type is best is similar to the question of which type of test is best and one that you should have with your physician based on your specific clinical symptoms and your specific clinical history. Um, so we offer testing with oral rinse and buckle swabs and find that if we ha find a heteroplasmic variant, it's similar in blood. Um, for skin cells, we generally don't want those cells because some, if a mitochondrial genome variant is um, present, sometimes they'll be selected against. So the sample may start at 40%, but over time, if you culture those cells or cause them to reproduce, you'll find that heteroplasmy level goes down. So may start at 40%, but go down to 30 or 20 or 10 or, and become undetectable, even if a variant was there to begin with. 
Um, one that we get frequently about uh, questions about is urine sample testing. So because some studies have found that the heteroplasmy of a variant found in urine is similar to that of muscle. However, DNA from urine is, the quality is extremely poor. So most of the time you don't get results. And so that's not a sample that we um, here at GeneDX or most other laboratories are able to offer at this time. Um, another question that we get is hair follicles. And again, this, it has the same problem as urine cells where you get very, very poor DNA quality. Um, and in addition to that, heteroplasmy can vary greatly from follicle to follicle. So um, just because you're testing one hair um, sample doesn't mean that that's representative of the heteroplasmy that's present in other hair samples. So if you look at slide 21, you'll see um, a list of some of the limitations of genetic testing because we have gone a very long way in uh, the field of genetics to be able to offer testing that's able to find diagnosis and more patients, but um, it's important to know the limitations of that testing. So um, knowledge about the function of all the genes in the genome is incomplete at this time. So like I said, a quarter of the genes um, have been associated with human disorder. So that means three quarters of the genes, we're not all the way sure if they cause human disease. Um, Additionally, uh, testing of a, we may find a variant, but we may not know enough about the gene, uh, the function, or the variant to be able to link it to the patient's symptoms. Um, not all types of genetic testing can detect all types of genetic variants known to cause disease, um, such as repeat expansions, which um, if I go back to Fragile X Syndrome, which is one of the more common forms of inherited um, intellectual disability, that wouldn't be detected by whole exome sequencing because it's a repeat expansion. It's not a um, sequencing variant, unlike most other genetic changes. Um, and additionally, for mitochondrial genome variants, heteroplasmy can vary from tissue to tissue. And so depending on the sample type that you send or the particular spot of the muscle biopsy, um, a variant may not be detected in one tissue but still be present in other tissues. So while genetic testing can be a great service and can um, provide a lot of information to patients, it's important to realize that there are limitations and that um, there may still be a diagnosis that testing just can't identify at this time. Um, and so I'd like to thank MitoAction for inviting me here today to present to you all. I'd like to thank the GeneDx mitochondrial testing team, Dr. Bai, Dr. Chui, Jamie, Linda, Katrina, and Robin, um, as well as the Mito patients and their families who allow us to perform this testing and provide diagnoses and um, who have been through a diagnostic odyssey a lot of times and um, we're, we're really thankful for the information that they're able to provide and the services we're able to provide for them, too. So um, I think, Mary Beth, we discussed questions, and I think we can open that up. I'm not sure how you want to do that. <laughs> okay, great. Well, wow, Amanda, what a great presentation. My mind is swirling, and, like, you have clarified things for me, even, um, you know, the VUS questions 
And um, I did not realize how specifically, like, CPEO could only be found in, you know, one sample type but not in another. I thought some may be better, but I didn't realize that it would just not show up at all. So you have increased my knowledge base, and I so appreciate it because MitoAction in general gets many questions about genetics. And, um, you know, people just have some raw results but just don't know what they mean. So I so appreciate you clarifying many, many of the questions that come to us, and I can now use your presentation to send to patients when they reach out to us to explain some of these fine-tuned um, differences between sample types and testing types and why this and not that. So, oh, thank you so much, Amanda. We have had quite a few questions come to me via email, so before I open up the lines, I'm going to ask a few of those questions first. And again, um, if you would like to email your question in for me to voice, uh, just send it to mito411 at mitoaction.org. And I will be happy to voice your question for you, or you can hang on till I open up the lines and ask a um, question live. Um, just keep in mind that the call is recorded, so try not to be too specific to your own specific case, but uh, you know, offer up a more general question. Um, I had a question come in about um, if a patient has one allele, one copy of a homozygous mutation, so meaning that they, they need two to sort of be classified as having that disease. Um, is there in mitochondrial disease a partial expression given that they don't have both genes? Um, or is it, nope, you're a carrier and you really don't have this disease? So the answer is it depends. <laughs> so most, <laughs> which I feel like in genetics, and especially mitochondrial genetics, we end up with that um, answer a lot. So most mitochondrial disorders are something called autosomal recessive, which, like you said, um, you have two copies of the gene, and both gene copies need to have something in order to cause the disease. Um, so when you it, it's a question we get a lot because when we test a lot of genes, we find a lot of variants, um, and there's multiple reasons that you can have that. Um, it could be that you are just a carrier of a recessive disorder, and that this this is kind of unrelated to your symptoms, that there's a diagnosis still out there. And I will say for um, most of the VUSs that we find that are heterozygous, that's that's likely the answer, um, that you are just a carrier. But, um, you know, depending on the particular gene, sometimes uh, carriers can have symptoms. Um, and depending on the type of testing, and the coverage and how well they were able to sequence that gene, um, it could be that they have a, var a second variant that we're just not able to detect at this time. So we talked about whole exome sequencing. It only um, looks at the, pro the protein coding parts of genes. So it doesn't evaluate every part of every gene. It just looks at the place where we're most likely to find a variant. So they could have something that's outside of that region or a type of variant, like I said, that wouldn't be detectable by sequencing. So um, yeah, unfortunately it depends. It's, um, if it's a variant of uncertain significance, it's unlikely to be the diagnosis for that patient, but it really depends on the specific variant, the specific gene, and the specific patient. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, there's another question about VUSs. 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, th- they did note that, you know, you use ClinBar to track these. But they were wondering how best should these VUS be tracked, like personally? Do you just trust that your diagnostic company will continue to track that VUS and let you know if there is, oh, other people have this and it is disease-causing? Or is there something more active that the patient population should be doing with their VUSs? They should be um, consulting with their physicians, the ordering physician, on a regular basis to see if those variants have been updated over time. Because at GeneDx, we'll... um, We'll relook at the variant the next time it's seen. So if we saw a variant in 2014 um, and then we saw it again in 2017, we'll reevaluate the um, evidence that's available for that variant. But if we don't see it again, we won't necessarily be able to update um, the classification of that variant with um, the additional data that may be available. Um, so it's I definitely like a progression of symptoms or something. Right, or if it's been published since 2014, we, you know, um, so that's something to talk to your physician about, and they can reach at the ordering physician can reach out to us and directly if they had testing with us to see if we've updated the classification because uh, evidence does accumulate over time, um, both to make things move towards the pathogenic end and the benign end. So um, definitely, that relationship with your physician is the most important with um, reminding them to see if any of those classifications have updated. Mm-hmm. As well as clinical registries that mm-hmm. may help with that tracking as well. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I know that there's probably some people live that would like a question, but I'll I'll jump in with one more and then uh, go back to my question list after we do a few lives. But um, a caller asked, what if a presentation looks like mito, but nothing seems to be showing on genetic testing? So that's one of the limitations of genetic testing, um, and it depends on the type of genetic testing. If they've had uh, just mitogenome sequencing alone versus panel testing versus whole exome sequencing, um, it may be that additional genetic testing um, would be a good idea and may be likely to uh, lead to a diagnosis. Um, it could be that the patient has had the most comprehensive testing that's available at this time, but um, in the future, testing may be offered. Um, when I was in school, whole exome sequencing was not clinically available. It was only on a research basis, and it was very new and very, very, very expensive, and so we could only offer it for research studies. And now it's it's um, standard of care for a lot of different patients. So genetic um, and our our panel of genes has increased from 24 genes to 139 genes to now 319 genes. So um, the testing that is available changes over time, um, and so maybe additional genetic testing uh, may be warranted, maybe not right now, maybe in the future, but um, that and it may it may be that this isn't genetic, that there's something else going on that's causing mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, but that's a, a unfortunately a good conversation to have with your physician. Okay, perfect. Nope, that's very very reasonable. Well, let me open up the lines and if you have emailed me, I know I have a few more questions in my my little stack of questions, so I will voice those, but if you would like to jump in and voice yourself, that's fine as well. But I'll open it up so that you can take a live question as well. Hang on one second. Sure. And please uh callers mute your line if you are not 
asking a question by using star six. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, go ahead. I have, this is Joy. Um, I, I just want to see if I understood this. Did you say that, like, I had genetic testing um, a year and a half ago? And so you're saying that, like, in six months, after two years or whatever, talk to the doctor about if there's any changes in that genetic testing? Yeah, just to see if the classification of those variants has changed over Classification. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Sure. Thank you, Joy. Um, Hello. Anyone else have a live question? Sure, go ahead. Uh, my name is Terry, and if you have, uh, you were talking about different uh, specimen types for the testing, um, had the blood, uh, sample used, but had also had a muscle biopsy, and I guess I never asked uh, what was best to use at the time. Would it be advantageous then to also have the muscle biopsy put through for genetic testing, and do people do that? Um, That's not unusual to do, especially um, if we go back to that case example of PEO, where testing muscle really is important. Um, It can also be important for patients who have, you know, muscle weakness. Um, I'm not with PEO. We know the number of uh, increased diagnoses that are made with muscle biopsy versus blood alone. Um, With other types. I don't think there's a good number on how many patients who have negative mitogenomes testing in blood who would then get a diagnosis on muscle. Um, so it it depends on your, your particular symptoms. Um, it may be worthwhile to repeat it, but um, and it and depending on the type of muscle biopsy sample that is left, it has to be frozen. It can't be paraffin embedded or having quote slides. So um some tests some samples aren't appropriate for mitogenome testing because of DNA quality. So that's um something to discuss. Thank you. Thank you. Um uh, there has another question came in. It is a little more specific, Amanda, so I'm not sure if this is within your realm, but they had some gene diagnostic testing that came back with a likely pathogen for GSG type two. Some enzymatic testing came back at the low end of normal, but some pulmonary function testing has shown neuromuscular respiratory weakness. So the person is wondering if that's enough evidence for it to be diagnosed as GS2 or should they be looking elsewhere? Ooh, that's a, <laughs> that is a tough one. And GSD type 2 was actually one of my subspecialties prior to coming to GDX. Um that would really depend on your specific variants, your specific enzyme levels, and um, definitely go back to your physician or, you know, maybe, re- uh, um, you know, have a consultation with a, um expert in GSD type 2 to see whether or not this is um, low end of normal or, you know, um, more diagnostic than that. Right, because I can see how the enzymes coming back even low end of normal is still in that normal range. Uh, some people dismissing that without maybe not weighing your symptoms quite enough. Exactly. But it, it's not 
It's not a. It's obviously not a big line in the sand. It's a little gray area in there. Mm-hmm. And as we do more genetic testing, the spectrum of symptoms that are associated with a particular disorder is um, increasing. So we are even stuff that we we've known about for a long time. We're still learning about known disease-causing genes. So it's um, definitely a learning experience for all of us in genetics. Mm-hmm. Great. And let me just throw in one other, because I'm, I have a pretty long list. Very interesting topic. You have really spurred a lot of questions, Amanda. Um, I am getting questions about what would be the cost if you have no insurance, like out-of-pocket kind of thing. It depends on the type of testing. Okay. Can um, you give us a range or just something for someone to contemplate? Um, it's It really, really depends, and there are some financial assistance programs available at different laboratories. So, I, uh, you know, it it's really really difficult to give that range. Um, okay. That's fair enough. Um so people should maybe see what kind of testing would be best for them, whether it's whole exome or a panel or whatever and then um maybe start to see right. what financial assistance is out there because I know many state-run insurances will not cover it because they're tagging it as Experimental and really right. come a long way. And a test may be cheaper, but if it that's, sorry about that. Sorry. If a te- even though a test may be cheaper, if it's unlikely to yield a diagnosis, then you know even though it's a lower amount of money, you still um, it wasn't likely to yield a diagnosis. So that's something to consider in that calculation. All right, great. Um, I will go back to a live question. I have a question. Um, I was wanting to find out that it kind of leads into the one that was just asked about how do you find out about the programs where you may be able to receive assistance. I've been diagnosed with mitochondrial myopathy and a genetic variance, and they found two unnamed defects in my genes. And so I was referred to a metabolic specialist, but I've lost my health insurance. And so I'm wanting to find out how do you find the information about programs where you may be able to receive assistance and go ahead and get the proper testing and care. Whew. That's a tough one. I, I, I'm Mary Beth. You're more tied into the resources in mm-hmm. in the Mito community, I think, than I am on the laboratory. And do you know of any resources? Um, I would say it would be best to contact me after the call at the MITO411 at mitoaction.org, and I will try and compile a list of those resources for anyone who would like them. Um, MitoAction has, um, you know, uh, some access to those lists, so I think that would probably be the best way to go. Is that okay with the caller? Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And wonderful call today. Thank you. Oh, oh, thank you. Um, do we have another live call, or should I go back to? Yeah, the- my name is uh, Fred. Okay, Fred. Um, I just ahead. don't know how to get. Hello. Go ahead, uh, Fred. I just don't know how to get started. Really, uh, I'm having have all symptoms like hypothyroidism, but that's not it. I uh, you know, I have bradycardia, low temperatures in the 95s, 96s, and my doctors, all the doctors I've gone to are clueless. <laughs> um, I don't know how to even get started with metabolic testing or what tests yeah. to even get. Um, have you seen a genetic counselor or a geneticist at this time? No. No, I have not. 
I think that might, if you have like a myriad of symptoms or you're concerned about a mitochondrial disorder, that's a really good place to start. Um, and like I said, genetics are really good at taking a step back and looking at oh, the whole clinical presentation of a patient to try and see if a genetic diagnosis can link those symptoms. Um, you can find a genetic counselor on uh, if you're in the United States um, on the National Society of Genetic Counselors website, nsgc.org. NSGC.org. Okay. Uh -huh. And um, there's a search function where you can put in your zip code and um, the subspecialty of genetic counseling you're looking at and to see if um, that individual is seeing, seeing patients um, to find a genetic counselor in your area. And that's a really good place to start. All righty. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. I have a question here. Again, maybe too specific, but which genetic test may be best to de detect a mito disorder that would explain neutropenia and leukopenia when they're pretty severe? Those, <laughs> Again, that's those are a, very specific because I know you need a specific one. <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a good one to discuss with your physician. <laughs> yeah, I agree, and they they would really need a bigger picture and a bigger historical timeline. Mm -hmm. And I think you do bring up a good point, Amanda. Mm -hmm. When you go to a genetic counselor or a very good metabolicist or that family tree, even your personal history things that you've never connected in the past suddenly come to life and you can start to see patterns emerge that maybe you didn't notice. And I find that fascinating and such mm -hmm. a key component to this whole diagnostic path. So even if you think you have your whole history down, sometimes talking it out, even putting it on a timeline with the help of a genetic counselor or a physician or whoever you may be seeing, can really bring patterns to life that you didn't notice before because you just you're so close to it, you live it. Exactly. So, and with mito disorders that's especially true because we talked about you can have symptoms in all of these organ systems or just one. Um and individuals in the same family can have symptoms in different systems even if they have the same pathogenic variant. So um, with that MELOS variant, sometimes they just have isolated hearing loss and diabetes or just cardiomyopathy and no seizures, but somebody else has seizures. And so um, it's definitely family history is extremely important in the context of mitochondrial disorders. Mm -hmm. um, let me throw one more at you here. Um, if someone had testing done in 2014, mm -hmm. would you recommend, and it, should, it did not um, yield much information, um, or diagnostic information, would you suggest that they repeat that testing at some point? And what time frame do you do you like that repeat done? Um, it's not good to repeat the same genetic test that you had done in the past. So if you had a specific panel that had 24 nuclear genes, it generally doesn't make sense to repeat the same specific genetic test again. It's not like a uh, complete blood, blood count where that changes over time. Your genetics, okay. mm -hmm. um, your nuclear genetics is pretty static. Um, it may be worthwhile to see what's now available um, for genetic testing. It may it may make sense to do a different type of genetic testing, uh, like if you had a panel in the past, or and maybe whole exome sequencing is better, or maybe um, now you have different symptoms that make you think, oh, maybe it's not this range of disorders, it's this range of disorders. Mm -hmm. So um, 
having genetic evaluation or neurological evaluation um, not just once but periodically is definitely a, a good idea to be updated on the test offerings that are available and might be appropriate for you, as well as tracking any new symptoms that may make you go down a different path on that diagnostic odyssey. I'd like to that ask makes... a question, please. <laughs> uh, go ahead. I'm the patient who had the testing done by Gene DX in 2014. Mm-hmm. At that time, the analysis was 139 nuclear genes. Mm-hmm. So now that you have a more expanded panel of genes that you look at, uh, could this testing be repeated? I don't have new symptoms. It's the same symptoms I've had for decades and decades and decades. <laughs> There's nothing new about this, but I know that the testing is improving. Mm-hmm. So the, we get that question a lot of, I had version one of the this panel, and I'm, now you offer version three. Is it a good idea to do version three? Um, depending on your symptoms, it may or may not. Um, the diagnostic yield from doing you know, version three, when you had version one in the past, the increase in the diagnostic yield, so the additional patients who gain a, gain a diagnosis by testing those additional genes is pretty low because um, the first panel had the heavy hitters. It had the ones that were most likely to yield a diagnosis, and so most of the genes that we add to panels are some of the more rare types. So, um, you know, it, it may or may not, depending on your clinical symptoms, um, but different genetic testing may be worthwhile as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Amanda. Well, it is 1 o'clock, and I know Amanda has to get back to work, so I really would just like to close by thanking you for sharing your expertise and taking some of these specific questions as well as our general ones. I um, The questions really have been wonderful questions and in-depth, and just shows the knowledge base of our community and how they um, know well how to use their time with an expert to get um, solid information or clarification when needed. So really, thank you so much. We all in this community just love to hear from people who are in our corners and fighting for our diagnoses and just working to improve the technology every single day. So thank you from all of us. And if you have any lingering questions, you can send them to me at the MITO411 at mitoaction.org email. And I will either, you know, see if I can get Amanda to jump on board and help me out and answer them or see if I can respond myself. But um, truly thank everyone for joining us on our call today. And uh, we wish you a great week. And, you know, join us next week for our regular support group. Thank you so much. All right. Everyone have a great week and um, stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks, Amanda.